This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. You're listening to Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Hello and welcome back. I'm Nikolai Zikoko, co-director of the Mac Institute and professor of management here at Wharton. And this is Mastering Innovation on SiriusXM's business radio, powered by the Wharton School. Now, I'm thrilled to introduce my next guests. Uh, we'll have on the line Joel Marcus. He is the executive chairman and founder of Alexandria Real Estate Equities, a real estate company focused on life science and technology campuses. Uh, Joel co-founded Alexandria in 1994 as a small startup with about $19 million in Series A capital. And then as CEO from March 97 to April 2018, he led the growth of Alexandria Real Estate into an S&P 500 company with an approximately $18 billion total market cap. Uh, in 96, Joel also founded the company's venture capital arm, uh, Alexandria Venture Investments, to make strategic investments in innovative life science and technology companies. And also joining us is Liz O'Day, the CEO and founder of Alaris Therapeutics, a precision medicine startup within Alexandria's ecosystem. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Pleasure to be Thanks. with you. Thanks for having us, Nicola. Wonderful. Uh, Joel, let's maybe just start out with Alexandria Real Estate. Tell us a little bit about the scale of the operations. We just said $18 billion total market cap, but give us an idea of I mean, how many buildings are we talking about? How many labs? Well, we have uh, major campuses, which is kind of how we think about them as opposed to one-off buildings in um, the heart of Seattle, um, San Francisco, Mission Bay, South San Francisco, Palo Alto, San Diego, Cambridge, we're the largest lab owner-operator there. Uh, New York City, we built the uh, largest campus, commercial campus for life science, and we operate in Maryland along the I-270 corridor, as well as Research Triangle Park, where we've actually initiated a, uh, a new venture in creating, we'll announce formally uh, next quarter, the first AgTech campus aimed at uh, really bringing world-class nutrition, hmm. because human health is made up of both trying to fight disease and good nutrition. So uh, that's uh, what they're there. I'm also very honored to be at Warden. My daughter graduated there, and I actually did a guest lecture um, appearance there many years ago um, in her venture capital class presenting the Alexandria mm. story. So it's kind of funny that we're talking here today. Yeah, wonderful, <laughs> wonderful. Now, what makes Alexandria a little bit different, I think, right, is sort of really your focus on labs, life sciences, what made you decide kind of to focus on that part of real estate? Well, we, um, the, the original founders was myself and two individuals from Jacobs Engineering who um, has their like Bechtel and Floor do worldwide architectural mm -hmm. and engineering for the pharmaceutical industry. I started in the pharmaceutical and really biotech industry in 1983, and also my dad was a developer. So we each had both biotech and um, uh, real estate experience, the founding group, and we said, gee, wouldn't it be interesting if we create a real estate company focused on this because nobody's ever done it, mm -hmm. and it's kind of a little bit odd because um, the buildings are complex buildings, as you know, most of the cost of the buildings actually in the infrastructure yeah. the um, that drives and powers the labs, and why don't we start a 
Series A startup company focused on that, um, raise a little bit of money, and maybe it'll go somewhere. We had no idea that we would be at the scale and the breadth and depth that yeah. we are today. But uh, the key, the key, one of the key strategies of the year or of the really company was back in 2004, five, and six. We pivoted from single buildings in those life science markets mm. to the core campus cluster theory. And we followed really the teachings and the learnings um, of um, Michael Porter from Harvard, uh, a small school you may know about. And um, we felt that that was the best way. This industry really is a collaborative and a uh, uh, you know, a very uh, vibrant um, industry, but they work together in many cases where some industries like the tech industry actually is is not nearly as collaborative and, uh, you mm -hmm. know, coalescing. Yeah, no, that's great. Uh, of course, Mike was my thesis advisor, so I, I do know the school a little bit. Um, the uh, But but it's, it's really intriguing, as you're saying, kind of moving from individual buildings to this idea about a campus. And uh, again, uh Having come back to to Kendall Square, it looks very different now than it did twenty years ago. Um, so, what's kind of your your, your vision when you, you think about a, a campus? What are the various pieces that you want to put into that sort of ecosystem slash cluster? Right. Well, that's a great question. So, in Cambridge, um, uh, where um, Elizabeth uh, resides today. We we own and operate three big campuses: Technology Square right across from MIT, one Kendall Square, which is where Elizabeth and um, mm -hmm. her company are situated, which is just about two blocks um, away. And then what we call the Binney Street um, corridor or campus. It's a total of about um, uh, two million square feet. So together, it's about four or five million square feet of campus, literally within a very adjacent walking distance. And what you look for are wonderful amenities that allow the uh, inhabitants on the campus to um, uh, to stay on the campus and to be efficient and to have those collisions and interactions. So you've got, you know, vibrant retail, you've got fitness, um, you've got a variety of uh, conferencing opportunities. And what we also felt then on the campus, it would be easy in Cambridge today just to lease a bunch of buildings or a campus to a big company. But that wasn't really our vision. Our vision was let's have the whole ecosystem on a campus. So mm -hmm. from startups like um, Alaris and Elizabeth two bigger companies like we just brought into the one Kendall Square company, the Gates Foundation, the first time they've yeah. ever actually done research themselves. So to have an integrated campus with all the participants is really kind of the key to making it work. Great. Now, we'll, we'll bring in Liz in a moment. Kind of, I want to also hear her side kind of, of what it, uh, advantages she gets from, from being part of that ecosystem. But uh, let's just stick with Alexander Real Estate for, for a moment. Um, so as companies grow, right, there is sort of always this tendency to become broader. Uh, but you have really continued to focus, right, on the on the life sciences. Now, I could imagine uh, as time goes on, once in a while you see really great deals, but that are outside your scope. So how did you have kind of the discipline to say no? So that's a great question. And we have uh, been – we've worked for many years with Jim Collins of good to great fame and he has, as you you know well know, um, a concept of you know be very disciplined and have the right people on the bus, which we've tried to do, mm -hmm. and uh, and I think done a great job. We have a long tenured um, team here, and the other thing is to create uh, multiple flywheels. So our base flywheel 
which is our main business, is life science infrastructure. We do venture capital, we do thought leadership, and we do uh, corporate social responsibility, all really integrate around the life science industry. But back in 1998, we had a three-building campus down in Mountain View that was a laboratory, and two guys named Sergey Brin and Larry Page came to us and said, we want to lease it. And mm-hmm. we thought, nope, not really. You guys are uh, tech tenants, and that's really not what we want to do. And so they said, no, this is really important to us. We just done out of Stanford, and we've got this company called Google. And in those days, you couldn't Google Google, so right. you didn't really know what it, what it was. So we checked on, we checked with Michael Moritz of Sequoia and some of the people over at Kleiner Perkins, and they said, well, you know, we don't know where this company is going, but we think it could be groundbreaking. So we ended up leasing the space to them, um, and that was our first tech tenant. And over the years, we've done a little bit of technology. Uber came to us in Mission Bay, which is surrounds the University of California at San Francisco's life science campus, and ended up we're delivering this year a million square feet for them that's tech mm. office. So we haven't diversified out of life science. We've kept that as a core. Yep. But in the markets we're in, like in Cambridge, Facebook came to us recently and wanted part of a, a lab building, and mm. we leased it to them. So we've done some technology. And then the third flywheel we consider to be what we call ag tech, which I mentioned yeah. before. Right. We think that the world is really ripe for major disruption in kind of farm to table. The whole way we bring, you know, food from the field to um, to the table, not so much on the delivery side, right. but, but on the technology yeah. side. So that's how we've structured the company. Mm. But the but the the core of the company and will always be is our life science core. Yeah. Great. Uh, In case you're just tuning in, uh, you're listening to Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Nikolai Zikolko, and my guests are Joel Marcus, the executive chairman and founder of Alexandria Real Estate Equities, and Liz O'Day, the CEO and founder of Olaris Therapeutics. So, Liz, uh, first of all, you must be an amazingly busy person. Um, So you're not only the founder and CEO of Olaris Therapeutics, You're also the founder of Lizard Fashion, an apparel company that uses fashion to promote science. And you're an adjunct faculty at Boston College teaching metabolism and entrepreneurship. Now, I have to ask, are these two different classes or is this the same class? It's actually the same class. All what right. we do is try to show like science in action. And uh-huh. Students can like take their, their learnings of basic science yeah. break it down to enzyme mechanisms and see how they might be able to develop products and, Super. Uh, and real-world applications. Great. So let's start with Olaris Therapeutics. Tell our listeners a little bit about your hunt for biomarkers. Yeah, thanks. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, I'm, I'm pretty excited to share our story here and what it's like to be part of the Alexandria campus. Yeah. Um, so focusing on Olaris, I'm going to take a wild guess, Nikolai, that you, you probably know somebody that's had breast cancer. Is that true? Yep. Yeah, nearly all of us. So one in eight women will get breast cancer. Um, and while still a really scary diagnosis, I actually think we're pretty fortunate to live in an era where there are truly some transformative therapies. Um, unfortunately, we're still not great at figuring out which treatment will work for an individual patient. Mm-hmm. And this can lead to some poor outcomes. So what Olaris does is uses a metabolomics profiling platform and machine learning algorithms to uncover biomarkers that can predict which drugs will actually work for patients. And also, equally importantly, which drugs will not work for a patient with the goal to sort of optimize treatment choices. Mm -hmm. So 
how do you get the data? So is this a, it's a blood draw, and then from from the blood you you get the necessary information. Yeah, exactly. So there's a lot of you know efforts in the sort of precision medicine space sort of springing up right now, mm -hmm. and some people might be familiar with sequencing in a genomics approach, where someone will take a tumor biopsy and they'll measure the genes um, inside a particular you know can uh, patient's cancer. Mm -hmm. We actually look at non-invasive biofluids, looking at blood or urine and at circulating metabolites. So these mm -hmm. are the things that are actually being produced in you, um, and so they sort of provide a true functional readout of like what's happening. So it influences from your endogenous metabolome. It can include microbiome byproducts as well as drug breakdown products. Um, so it's like a, a legal fingerprint of what's happening inside you or me and help explain why certain people, you know, are more susceptible to certain diseases and why if two people given the same drug, one might benefit from that drug and another one might not. Mm -hmm. So as you just sort of pointed out, there, there seem to be sort of at least sort of two main use cases, right, for biomarkers. One is why are some people more susceptible to diseases than others? And Why do some people react differently to the same drug, right? As you said, like in cancer treatments. Yeah. So, so where's uh, Olars's focus right now? Yeah, so we're definitely focused on like the precision medicine space, where, as I said, you know, there are truly great drugs out there mm -hmm. um, that work for segments of, of patient populations, and we have technology to figure out which patient will benefit from those drugs and which patients will not. And so, like the revolution that Olaris is trying to create as As drugs come to market, they should have sort of part of their label, you know, what's called an MOA, a mechanism of action of how those drugs work, mm -hmm. but also a BOR, a biomarker of response that says who these drugs work for and who these drugs do not work for. Mm -hmm. um, so this is where our company is, is focused, but where we ultimately want to end up um, is going from precision medicine to preventative medicine, which sort of talks about identifying risk factors and being able to detect disease at its earliest onset. So you might be able to sort of implement, let's say, lifestyle changes um, to maybe even pre prevent the disease from ever progressing. Yeah. So sounds obviously like a wonderful kind of uh, indication to have, right, on the on the product itself. So if yeah. you have the you know, following um, profile kind of, right, this, this product will work for you. Um, I could see kind of the big data challenges. It's not so difficult to draw my blood and to kind of test it for all kinds of things or to sequence certain things, but then how to link that to outcomes, right? Uh, because you haven't tested me for seven different types of cancer drugs. So uh, how do you get kind of the, the link between the input data and the output data? Yeah, so this is really interesting. So um, so I'm, I'm another hat that I wear. I'm uh -huh. the co-chair for, for the World Economic Forum's Biotechnology Council and um, just recently at Davos talking about mm -hmm. sort of efforts just around this, how we can use data to better treat future patients. And um, I gave a talk that was called Biomarkers are the DeLorean for Personalized Medicine. And, um, you know, much like in Back to the Future, how Marty McFly and Doc Brown used the DeLorean to kind of, you know, go between past, present and future we can use biomarkers from past patients to help inform patients today. We're mm -hmm. already sort of making efforts with that with some previous sequencing attempts. But if we make a concerted effort right now to start collecting patient samples, coupling that with, you know, strong electronic health records and really well curated clinical data, we can then inform that for future patients. So for this to work, you know, we need access to retrospective data to uncover these biomarkers mm -hmm. so that then they can inform future decisions. So for Olaris's sort of workflow, you know, we partner with academics, 
taxpayers, actually governments all across the world to get access to patient samples from a previous study and say, we know that we know in this study certain, let's say in breast cancer, certain women benefited from a particular drug. We mm-hmm. also know certain women given that same drug were not helped by, by, by that treatment. So we take their blood and we look, what was the difference that led to these two different outcomes? And can we use it to empower the future treatment mm-hmm. um, of new patients? Now, with a lot of these big projects of data gathering and linking it to outcomes, uh, it has very much a public good aspect to it, right? Um, yeah. In general, we just need to do it once, right? Um, but as you said, uh, kind of the field of precision medicine, you're not the only one out there. <laughs> so kind of, right, uh, kind of maybe breaking still your Davos hat, um, yeah. right? Sort of what, what are the... What are the uh, public good aspects of this or, or the, the coordination among various uh, attempts of stitching together these things so that we're not all duplicating the same efforts five times or have a fragmented, you know, one person has access to five studies, the other one has access to the other eight studies, uh, but it would be much better if we had access to all of them. Oh, you're hitting such a really important um, part about precision medicine and the way that it works or the way that data has the most value is like when it's consolidated, right? And yeah. so how do we how do we make that happen? And I don't have the answer. It's something that, you know, different stakeholders are trying to kind of come together. Um, you know, there are, I was actually just on a phone call this, this uh, morning with um, the uh, FinGene, which is uh, Finland's sort of... Uh, national genomic uh, database. And they've done like a really great job of developing these public part, public and private partnerships where, you know, everyone in Finland can get their, their, their um, themselves sequenced, they can contribute clinical data, and then pharma and other companies can access it because everyone believes that there's a, a good benefit that can come from it. Um, but for that to sort of work and to be functional, the there's a really important role of the data collector, the people that are holding this data, you know, because there's certain expectations. If I put my data in there, how is it going to be used and how is it not going to be used? And this is sort of a lot of the work that we're doing on the biotechnology council is trying to identify sort of what are best practices, what are principles, you know, that data collectors need to adhere to and are there standards that we can sort of develop, you know, across the globe and lead to sort of um, yeah, global initiatives that allow um, these types of metrics to be put in place and these types of sharing initiatives so that we have the best data set, you know, mm-hmm. help humanity, not, not to sound too, too idealistic, yeah. like it really could if, if it's done right. Um, but that being said, I don't want to be naive. If it's done wrong, there's a lot of misuse of this data that could happen. There's, you know, genetic discrimination. Yep. There's all kinds of other stuff that um, could fall as a result of this. So, at Davos, I hosted a panel, what if we were all sequenced from birth? Like, what would that look like? What are the issues that we need yep. to unpack so that it could be a good thing and not a bad thing? And I think we're still in the dialogue phase. I don't think there's any right answer just yet. Right. And so, I mean, I think there's, I'm very glad you brought that whole set of issues up in terms of, right, the abuse of, of, of the data. Uh, wearing my uh, strategy professor hat, uh, of course, I'm also worried about uh, the investor who might be sitting next to you uh, saying, right, sort of if all of that is publicly available, right, sort of how do you create a, a, a profit stream, right, from uh, um, your your efforts. So talk a little bit more about Alaris's kind of competitive advantage. So so what, what in some sense do you bring to the table? Uh, it cannot be just the data gathering part, right? So so what, what, are, what are kind of the, the key capabilities that you've been able to assemble? Yeah, so Alaris' sort of competitive advantage or what makes us unique is actually we're not doing genomics. We're probably one of the few companies yeah. 
that is looking downstream of the genome mm-hmm. and looking at metabolites. So um, I always say I'm, I'm certainly a fan of sequencing. I think we should, you know, sequencing is a great first step and should almost be like baseline um, for a lot of, you know, different treatment choices to begin with. But it tells you what could happen. It doesn't necessarily tell you what will happen. Uh-huh. And so metabolites, which what is what we measure, um, we're sort of the sort of the first movers there of doing these types of multiplex assays and, and machine learning and AI sort of an, analytical tools to uncover signatures that predict response and non-response. And so um, that's, you know, sort of what makes our, uh, us sort of different. I will say that, you know, the area that we're in, diagnostics and biomarkers, routinely I get told by investors is like, yeah, Liz, you know, I think your technology is going to, you know, could save the world, but how is it going to be make me money? How am I going <laughs> to, you know, justify investing in you to get the ROI that, you know, yep. my, um, my fund demands? And it's a really, it's an interesting problem. Um, I think that we are seeing a shift where there's, you know, there's enough critical mass and there's enough case studies to show that biomarkers like those that Olaris are developing are not only improving outcomes for patients, which is, you know, why we're all in this, but they're also leading to incredible um, healthcare cost savings. But one third of all healthcare costs goes on like wasted drug mm-hmm. or ineffective treatment. Yep. Um, and we all know that healthcare, you know, has a lot of oh. deficiencies. And by just simply inputting biomarkers and diagnostic tests and paying for them at value so that they get their opportunity to be commercialized and have investment could be a tremendous game changer here. Absolutely. Right. And I think, again, just having been at the uh, Wharton Healthcare Conference and seeing how much money is being spent in um, uh, drug trials, right, and and trying to get the right enrollment even in 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 these drug trials, I could imagine uh, biomarkers potentially playing an important role there uh, as well. Yeah, and there, there's already a couple, like some case study there that you know you, the likelihood of a drug going of a, of a drug starting from concept to getting actually marketed approval there's yeah. like about a 10 percent success rate. I there. know, right? Great. If you, yeah, if, if you add a genetic biomarker, I think it increased about twenty five percent. We think if you add some additional biomarkers, either in combination with, geno- with genomics or on their own, that yeah. number is going to kind of get up right. there again. Like. Great. We have the technology to figure this out. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. Joel, Liz, thank you so much for joining me today. And uh, great, thanks. And thank you so much for all of you joining us. Um, Once again, special thanks to our guests, Reshma, Joel, and Liz. Until next time, I'm Nick Lezikoko, co director of the Mac Institute, and this is Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.